You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. You might wonder why you can hear the sound of the waves when the story that we're going to be talking about tonight takes place in outer space. Well, before we take flight on that ship, it's important to understand where the origins of this story lie. In chapter 6 of A Voyage to Botany Bay, published in 1795, the writer documents the following. I had often heard of the superstition of sailors respecting apparitions and doom, but had never given much credit to the report. It seems that some years since a Dutch man of war was lost off the Cape of Good Hope, and every soul on board perished. Her consort weathered the gale, and arrived soon after at the Cape. Having refitted and returning to Europe, they were assailed by a violent tempest, nearly in the same latitude. In the night watch, some of the people saw, or imagined they saw, a vessel standing for them under a press of sail, although she would run them down. One particular affirmed it was the ship that had foundered in the former gale, and that it must certainly be here or the apparition of her, but on its clearing up, the object, a dark thick cloud, disappeared. Nothing could do away the idea of this phenomenon on the minds of the sailors, and on their relating the circumstances when they arrived in port, the story spread like wildfire, and the supposed phantom was called the Flying Dutchman. In Scenes of Infancy, written in 1803 by John Leyden, another aspect of the legend is added. And it says, It is a common superstition of mariners that in the high southern latitudes on the coast of Africa, hurricanes are frequently ushered in by the appearance of a spectre ship, denominated the Flying Dutchman. The crew of this vessel are supposed to have been guilty of some dreadful crime in the infancy of navigation and to have been stricken with pestilence and are ordained still to traverse the ocean on which they perished till the period of their penance expire. So as in all good legends, when you hear about the Flying Dutchman, those accounts can be as varied as you would expect for a tale that is passed from sailor to sailor over many a drink in a tavern at port. So we'll come back to that tale later on, but in the meantime, right now, we have a date with destiny in the far future in the year 1997. Picture of the spaceship E-89 
cruising above the 13th planet of star system 51, the year 1997. In a little while, supposedly, the ship will be landed and specimens taken, vegetable, mineral, and if any animal. These will be brought back to overpopulated Earth, where technicians will evaluate them and, if everything is satisfactory, stamp their findings with the word inhabitable and open up yet another planet for colonization. These are the things that are supposed to happen. So we'll take our leave of the doomed souls on the Flying Dutchman and meet up with the spaceship E-89 to meet Captain Ross and Lieutenant Carter and Mason as they touch down on the 13th planet of Star System 51 and see the wreck of a crashed ship that looks very familiar. So it's time to find out just what happened on that death ship. Picture of the crew of the spaceship E-89. Captain Ross, Lieutenant Mason, Lieutenant Carter. Three men who have just reached a place which is as far from home as they will ever be. Three men who in a matter of minutes will be plunged into the darkest nightmare reaches of the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 7th, 1963. Written by Richard Matheson and directed by Don Medford. So with Death Ship we bid a fond farewell to Don Medford, or Midnight Medford, as his friends sometimes called him, because this is his final Twilight Zone directing job, and he does have a decent batting average with the episodes A Passage for Trumpet, The Man in the Bottle, The Mirror, Death's Head Revisited, and now Death Ship. And after this he would carry on doing what he always did, being a hard-working director, until his retirement in 1989. And he lived a good long life until 2012, when he passed away at the age of 95. So Don Medford, for your contribution to the Twilight Zone, we salute you. So not a great deal to say about Rod Serling's opening narration. We get this kind of two-tier narration here, where he starts out off-screen and then comes on-screen. And it sets things up at the beginning and then puts that little sting in to get us going. Now again, as worryingly seems to be the case with these episodes in Season 4, considering this is generally regarded to be one of the best episodes of the season, there isn't a great deal of trivia, but there are certainly a few things to dig into. And the first thing is probably pretty obvious to most of us at this point who have been on this journey for a while, and that is the movie Forbidden Planet is well represented here. And Martin Grams Jr. writes in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that the spaceship E-89 is the same as the United Planets Cruiser C-57D from that movie, and the space uniforms in the production are also the same worn by the crew members of the United Planets Cruiser. But this really adds to one of the things that I like about this episode, this 50s, 60s science fiction aesthetic especially when they come down onto the planet and you see the ship lowering onto this landscape you know it's not convincing but that's its charm and i especially like the spinning spaceship as it lands and mark zickry documents in the twilight zone companion included in death ship are a number of visually impressive futuristic props 
and that realistic paintings depict a wrecked spaceship and the exterior of a house back on Earth. Also worth noting are the day and night shots of the spaceship landing and taking off. And the producer Herbert Hirschman recalls, the MGM special effects department did this. I supervised the construction and told them what I wanted. We built a miniature to show the ship landing and taking off. It was on a table with sand and little plants. The ship was suspended from invisible wires, and as the ship was slowing in the descent, I wanted to see the sand billowing up. It was very expensive, but I felt that it was essential to the credibility of the show. It was an awful lot of fun. I kept asking for more, and they kept doing it. So when the crew land, they walk over to a crashed spaceship, and they go inside to this wonderfully atmospheric interior set. And to their dismay, the ship is clearly the same as their own, and the dead bodies that they find inside look just like them. It was us in there. We're dead. Could you imagine what it was like when this thing hit? Well, our ship is where we left it, just as we left it. That isn't our ship. Those aren't our bodies. Imagine what it's like. they are. No. I don't know what it is, but there's a logical explanation for this. Imagine. Everything has a logical explanation. This is me. Imagine. This is you. Imagine, Imagine what it was like. Use your head. It's not what it seems. What is it? What is it? I don't know, but think. Yes, sir. We're leaving. We're going back to the ship, radio the station. They'll tell us what to do. Yes, sir. Now, there's a great moment here where Mason is staring into space and his face appears more and more petrified. And then you hear a crash. But the spell is broken when the captain calls his name. And it's a great little moment because you almost don't really notice it on a first watch. You're looking at him and you think he's just cracking up. But then this crashing sound starts to kick in. But before you have time to process it and wonder what it means, the captain snaps him out of it. So you pretty much forget it and just carry on with the episode. So I think it's very nicely played. So while they try to figure out what's going on, why don't we meet our first crewman? Lieutenant Carter is played by Fred Bear and there's not a huge amount of information about him out there. The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia doesn't really give any background on him other than that he was born in 1927 in New York. He made his screen debut in 1950 on an episode of the Philco Television Playhouse called The Man Who Got Away With It and from then on he became a hardworking actor but was very much a guest star and didn't really take any recurring roles until 1979 and that was only three episodes of Dallas. Sadly though, he died at the too young age of 52 in 1980. And I think he seems to be a dependable actor, probably not quite as natural in his delivery as his co-stars. He does kind of go quite big at times, but he's good enough. Now, one of the things that I like about this episode is that in trying to figure out what is going on, 
Captain Ross, played by Jack Klugman, will cycle through a list of possibilities, which are all things we've seen in other science fiction stories. And the first thing is that old classic science fiction trope of a person or persons trying to outmaneuver a future that they have had a glimpse of. Listen, wait a minute. Do you both remember what they told us once in training about the theory of circumnavigating time? They said it might be possible for us to leave the Earth during one year. Then when we got back, though we thought it was the same year, it might be the year before or the year after. Remember that? That was just a theory, Captain. Oh, no, it's not a theory, because that's what's happened to us. We've gone into some kind of time warp, right into the future. And that ship standing out there is in the future? Is that what you're saying? No, no. Only the probable future. What does that mean? That means we're not dead. And it also means we're going to be dead. Not if we don't go up. If we don't go up, we can't crash. Now, it's the only answer. We're alive now, Mason. The only way to make certain that we stay alive, you, Carter, me, is not to go up. Then we can't crash. We avoid it, we prevent it. Or you could come back to a planet of talking apes. So after some initial protests, the captain decides that if they don't try to take off, then they can't crash, so there's certainly some logic there. But while they stay on the planet, the crew start to experience some unusual happenings. First off, Lieutenant Carter seems to find himself inexplicably back on Earth, walking home to see his wife. So I'm just going to take a slight detour here because what I haven't mentioned yet is that this is another season 4 episode that is based on a short story. So the original story of Death Ship first appeared in the March 1953 issue of Fantastic Story magazine and it was later included in his collection Shock and it has been in other collections since. So let's take stock for a moment of those episodes in season 4 that were based on short stories. The first episode in his image was a Charles Beaumont story that was faithfully adapted and filled its running time well, as far as I'm concerned. And then the last episode, Mute, was also based on a Richard Matheson short story, and again, it was pretty faithful. There was no padding here, they just adapted the story. But Death Ship, on the other hand, was a short story. If it was made in its original form, it probably would be about the length of a season 1 to 3 Twilight Zone episode. So there wouldn't be enough material in it to fill out this longer running time for a longer season 4 episode, so Richard Matheson had to add to it, and what he added was this part of the story, these sequences where crewmen have these episodes where they encounter family members or people they know back on Earth. And I actually think they work very well, because instead of making the episode feel padded out, they actually enrich the episode in several different ways. So on the face of it, we get to know the characters more, and we know what the stakes are. But also, it feeds into the captain's next theory, which we'll get to in a moment. So Lieutenant Carter has found himself on Earth and had this experience where he's on his way, to see his wife, or so he thinks. And the episode does drop some big clues here. 
we see a black hat and black gloves on their bed and the telegram that she received informing her that her husband had died. And also what is a very big clue as well is that the people who he does see in this place are people who he knows have actually died in his past. And the only person he doesn't actually see is his wife because she hasn't died yet and he would be the one waiting for her in the afterlife as opposed to the experience that Lieutenant Martin has. Oh, Daddy, I thought I'd never find you. Jamie. I looked and looked. I found him, I found him. Lunch is ready, Daddy. And am I hungry after all that searching? What's the matter, Daddy? Come here. Come here. What, Daddy? Oh. Jeannie. Jeannie. What is it, Daddy? Oh, baby, is it you? So a very emotional performance here from the actor Ross Martin. And Martin Grams Jr. writes in Unlocking the Door to a television classic that at the time Martin was separated from his own daughter who was with his first wife in New York. And he said, I found that certain personal things with regard to my own daughter motivate me or drive me or move me. Years ago, I was in a class taught by Marty Ritt who is now a brilliant director. And one of the exercises we had to do was to move a distance of something like 18 feet in three steps and sit in a chair. I mean just move three steps and you're sitting in the chair. And I said, it just can't be done. And he said, you give yourself something that'll make you do that. So I pictured my daughter under certain circumstances. Now it's horrible to me even now as I mention it, but the truth is, that I pictured her at a window inside a burning building, calling to me in near panic, Daddy, Daddy, and I took those steps. It was effortless to stride the length of a man's body. It was almost as though I had been shot out of a cannon, but that was because that was meaningful to me, and I used similar circumstances involving my own daughter in my mind in preparation for that scene. So when I turned and saw her, my heart just broke. The joy, the joy at seeing her. So a fascinating look at the process of actually a very interesting man. So as I said, Lieutenant Martin is played by Ross Martin and he was born in Poland in 1920, but moved to New York when he was young. Before he learned to speak English as well as his native Polish tongue, he also spoke Yiddish and Russian. Then after he learned to speak English, he also learned Spanish, French and Italian too. And also as a child, he was an extremely talented violin player. So clearly he was a very intelligent person and as well as his skill with languages, he also held honors in business and law. But it's acting and performance that he chose and in that he was equally as adept at mastering various facets of performance craft. 
He was in a vaudeville comedy duo between 1937 and 1941 called Ross and West. He sang in musicals on Broadway and he was so adept at accents that he would often play multiple parts in the same radio shows and even played parts in eight major radio shows at the same time. And he was equally as prolific on television, but perhaps he is best known for his role as Artemis Gordon in the show Wild Wild West. But in 1968, the year before the show was cancelled, he suffered a near-fatal heart attack, which apparently made studios reluctant to hire him for long-term acting jobs in television series. But he was still a very prolific actor even after his heart attack. Now we've already seen him in the Twilight Zone in the episode The Four of Us Are Dying where he played Johnny Foster, the musician who was killed in an accident but his persona was stolen by Arch Hammer. And while this is his last Twilight Zone, he does appear in two Night Gallery stories, The Other Way Out and Camera Obscura. Unfortunately, his heart troubles did finally catch up with him in 1981 when he passed away, as he was just about to start work on a revival series of Wild Wild West, after two television movies had been made in 1979 and 1980. But what a fascinating man Ross Martin is, it seems that he lived his life filling it with experiences and knowledge and I really like him in this, you know, it's clear why he was always a working actor. And he's a great counter to Jack Klugman's driven Captain Ross. What does it say? Read it. The wife and daughter of space pilot Ted Mason died early this morning on the call. Don't you see, Ted? You weren't there. You weren't there. They're, they're dead. You're alive. I was there, Paul. I was, I was. No, no, it, it took isn't. me away. No, it isn't true. Isn't it? I was wrong. It has nothing to do with circumnavigating time. Nothing at all. Remember what you thought before you saw that ship over there? Alien contact, that's what you thought. Well, that's exactly what's happened to us. I thought you didn't believe in alien contact. Listen to me. Neither of you were home. That is not our ship. Those are not our bodies. We've been tricked. By whom? By whoever it is that lives on this planet and doesn't want anyone else to live here. Well, don't you understand? We haven't been able to see them, but there are aliens here. But aliens who aren't strong enough to kill us or drive us away by force. So what can they do? How can they keep their planet from being colonized? By mind control. So the captain now thinks that this is all just an illusion created by aliens, which is really where my mind was at this point as well, because we've all read those stories and we have seen those shows. The Ray Bradbury story, Mars is Heaven, comes to mind, or the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage, where Captain Pike has a similar experience with aliens who have the ability to present a false reality to him. So Matheson is able to subvert audiences' expectations throughout the episode, 
and it's as if he's throwing these known science fiction tropes at us. It's a time slip, it's aliens who control minds, but in fact, in the end, the simplest explanation was the genuine one. And Matheson was asked about this use of the alien trope where aliens can put images into your mind and so on. And Martin Grimes Jr. documents his response in unlocking the door to a television classic. And Matheson says, Everyone did a story about Martians being defenseless and using mental means to get their invaders put away at that time. But there were no aliens in Death Ship. It was just the willpower of the captain. I didn't think it was ambiguous at all. In the last commentary, Sailing said, a man who is so powerful and convinced that he just refused to let reality impinge on him. But before we get to that main twist, Captain Ross has his crew members convinced that yes, they have been experiencing delusions brought on by aliens. And the only way to show that the crashed ship isn't real is to take off again and not crash. And when they do take off, we are treated to this beautiful shot that Herbert Hirschman was talking about earlier. The gorgeous landscape and that iconic saucer rising into the sky with flames coming out of the bottom. And then when the launch is successful, we get this moment. Huh? You were right. <laughs> he was right. Boy, if ever I see anything glitter on that viewer again, I'll just keep my big mouth shut. Yeah, <laughs> I was right. Hey, what, are, what are you doing? Preparing for a landing. What? Well, now that we know what it is, there's no reason we shouldn't go back, is there? No reason? What are you, what are you, mind? We have orders, Carter. Pick up specimens of foreign life. We're going to pick them up. Well, you're not... Carter, get your hands off! I'll smash you in here! Put you in me! Now I have mixed feelings about this moment because on the one hand it now looks like the ship is going to crash so we again think that we're getting that time slip episode that Matheson had teased us with earlier on when the captain said that they had just arrived in a different time and the crash hadn't happened yet for them so it seems to be one of those self-fulfilling prophecy type stories and it's great that Matheson kind of turns it back round to this, so you really don't know which one of these theories is true. But of course, they level out the ship, and they land safely. So it's yet another nice piece of misdirection from Richard Matheson, so I really like this part of it. But the part that I'm not too keen on is that the captain makes the decision to go back down to the planet again, now I know the show is setting him up as this forceful character who when he makes up his mind he sticks to it and he can't be swayed and that is ultimately the point of the episode but while he might be stubborn and pig-headed at times he never really struck me as a foolish man. His theory about there being aliens who have infiltrated their minds is as good a theory as any, it's equally as fantastical as the time travel story or the actual reality that they've all died and are in some kind of afterlife. So the fact that he's pinned everything onto this theory, I'm fine with. But if he is so convinced that it's aliens who have done this, then I just can't see this man, Captain Ross, making the decision to go back down 
after all that had happened to them already. To go down and potentially be mentally overpowered by this alien species that they know nothing about again. They haven't even seen them, so there's no guarantee that they'll be able to outwit them and get back up into the ship again. Now I know that the aliens don't exist, but he doesn't know that, and that's his main theory at the moment. So I just can't understand why he would go back down again. It just doesn't ring true to me. And it's a shame that Matheson couldn't come up with some other explanation for going back down to the planet. But saying that, it's not a deal breaker. It's a questionable moment in a sea of strong ones. And when they do land, we finally find out what's really happened. Gone, Captain. All right, it's still there. That doesn't mean anything. I'll tell you what it means. It means you're wrong. There's an explanation for this somewhere. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to find it. Well, you'll never know. You know why, Captain? Because we got to go back up again. And this time, we're really going to crash. No, we're not. We're not going to crash. Because we already have crashed. What are you talking about? Stop fighting it, Captain. You're all out of explanations. There's only one left, and you know it. I know nothing of the kind. Oh, yes, you do. Carter was home. That telegram was really there. I was with my wife and my daughter because I'm just like them now. No, no. Accept it, Captain. Stop trying to prove that we're alive. Oh, you're alive. There's something happening here. I don't know what it is, but there's an explanation for it. I've given you the explanation. I don't accept it! We're gonna go over it again until I find the answer. Can't you see that's what we've been doing? Going over it again. For me, this episode was one of those times when I watched something and I enjoyed it well enough, but the full effect of it didn't really hit me until afterwards. And I found myself thinking about it and enjoying it even more. Part of it, I think, is on that first watch, it presents those various possibilities throughout that are in line with stories that we've already seen or read or heard. So it keeps you guessing as to which one of those it is, and that's fine. But I actually think Matheson gives us something so much better. Now, I haven't mentioned our leading man, Jack Klugman, yet because I wanted to save it for the summing up of the whole episode. At this point in the Twilight Zone, we've been acquainted with Klugman in A Passage for Trumpet and A Game of Pool, and in the future we'll see him in In Praise of Pip. And he generally plays the down-on-his-luck guy, or the talented but flawed guy, the angsty self-loathing guy, and always in very street-level settings. So this outer space story does seem like a bit of a departure for him. And I have heard comments from people in the past that he isn't particularly right for this role. Now I have to admit that if I were casting a spaceship captain at this time, in a world when James T. Kirk was only just around the corner, I'm not sure I would have cast Klugman either. And I completely realize that I'm kind of pigeonholing Klugman there and also given into a lifetime of conditioning 
that people in a role like this tend to be your typical handsome, square jaw type rather than the hangdog, angsty clugman. So I'm completely open to it and I'm happy to try and put those biases to one side and to see what Klugman has. And on the second watch, I really did. I think Klugman is great in this. And this character is really the key to everything. And when we refer back to the legend of the Flying Dutchman and the captain of that ship, we can see what Matheson was basing Captain Ross on. Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine in 1821 gives us a bit of detail on Ross's inspiration and it says she was an Amsterdam vessel and sailed from port 70 years ago. Her master's name was Van der Decken. He was a staunch seaman and would have his own way in spite of the devil. For all that, never a sailor under him had reason to complain though how it is on board with them nobody knows. The story is this, that in doubling the Cape, they were a long day trying to weather the Table Bay. However, the wind headed them and went against them more and more, and van der Decken walked the deck swearing at the wind. Just after sunset, a vessel spoke to him, asking him, if he did not mean to go into the bay that night. Van der Decken replied, May I be eternally damned if I do, though I should beat about here till the day of judgment. And to be sure, he never did go into that bay, for it is believed that he continues to beat about in these seas still, and will do so long enough. So here was a captain who would have his own way in spite of the devil, whose stubbornness cursed the ship to be forever trapped in this maelstrom of bad weather. Now in the original short story by Matheson, there is no room for doubt that this is inspired by the Flying Dutchman because it is mentioned explicitly at the end of the story, which does feel a bit too on the nose, and I'm glad that Matheson doesn't do the same thing in this version. So if Captain Ross is based on Captain van der Decken, this all makes sense, because throughout the episode, Ross only does what he wants to do, despite the protestations of the crew. So I think why maybe some people don't like Klugman in this role is that... He's not really a one-note actor. He's not just forceful and stubborn. What Klugman brings to it is that whatever is going on internally really comes out through his face and his actions. So he's not just immovable for the sake of it, which I think ultimately is a lot richer on repeat viewings. But perhaps when you first see it, you wonder whether he's really a good fit for it. But in the end, analysis aside, I love Death Ship. I think this is top tier Twilight Zone for me. What it brings to season four that I don't think we've had so far is the poetry. A ship with a dead crew that is doomed to keep revisiting the site of their death over and over again because the captain can't accept what is right in front of his eyes, his own death and his sheer stubbornness and force of will stops him and his crew from moving on to what comes next. His crew had a glimpse of the afterlife, but that's all they'll get. 
because Captain Ross won't let them have their final rest. Now I have enjoyed season 4 so far, but I think this is the best Twilight Zone. It's the one that ticks all the Twilight Zone boxes. In his image, Valley of the Shadow and Mute were good science fiction and fantasy stories. The Thirty Fathom Grave was a good ghost story, if not a little long, and He's Alive was brilliant, but it's more akin to Sailing's Playhouse 90 type of shows. But Death Ship feels like a Twilight Zone through and through, and the episode length gives Matheson a chance to play around with expectations by presenting possibilities that would have been a final twist in any other Twilight Zone. And Matheson at times had been critical of Twilight Zone versions of his stories, but on this occasion, he was so happy with it that he wrote to Rod Serling and said, Dear Rod, a note to let you know that old malcontent Matheson is at long last content indeed. Death Ship was, as you say, a corker. I was almost dazed by the extreme quality of it in every single department. Marvelously perceptive directing, three superb pieces of acting, great photography and special effects, even a perfect score. All in all, a highly satisfying and to me, very close to haunting experience. And Sailing responded, I had one carping criticism of the performances during the teaser. I thought they were too high, too emotional and too unrestrained. But this was covered for by a corker of a first act and all the ensuing stuff that followed. I really thought it a beautiful job of writing and a marvellous job of production. The garland goes out to old man Matheson for doing it again. And speaking of doing it again, it appears we might go back to a half hour form. Can we count on you? So an interesting teaser of what is to come there. But before we go back to that half hour form, Death Ship to me is proof positive that the Twilight Zone can work at this length. And that was never really a question for me to be honest because much as we debate things online and try to apply rules about what does and doesn't work, the truth is there are no rules about anything. You just need a storyteller who is good enough to fill that space that they've been given. Whether that's a 30 minute show, or an hour long one, or a movie like Planet of the Apes. And for me, with Death Ship, Matheson proves that point beautifully. Picture of a man who will not see anything he does not choose to see, including his own death. A man of such indomitable will that even the two men beneath his command are not allowed to see the truth. Which truth is that they are no longer among the living that the movements they make and the words they speak have all been made and spoken countless times before, and will be made and spoken countless times again, perhaps even unto eternity. Picture of a latter-day flying Dutchman sailing into the Twilight Zone. Okay, that was Death Ship. Thank you so much for listening. And I'm going to go to some listener feedback in a moment. I do hope everyone is happy and healthy and well. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to thank Jason Schwartz for jumping on board over on Patreon. Thank you. Also, Elliot. Thank you, Elliot, for jumping on. 
and Adam Foster as well. I appreciate your support and uh, thank you so much for getting on board over there. If you want to jump on, then it's patreon.com slash podcast. And if you want to get on board, then it's a good time to, as I relaunch things at the end of May. So let's go over now and catch up with some listener thoughts on season four. Now, I don't usually read emails. I've kind of moved over to using clips that people send in because I like to get people's voices onto the show. But I'm going to read these two from a couple of people who shed a bit of light on something that I brought up in the Mute episode. And that was, there was this place called German Corners. And I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. There didn't seem to be much of a mention of it on the internet. So I got a couple of emails about this and the first one is from Mark and he says, Hi Tom, imagine if you will my surprise when I heard the place I grew up being mentioned on the Twilight Zone podcast. Germansville, with the hard G, is a rural community, the centre of which consists of a post office, a firehouse and not much else. I barely ever hear it mentioned, even now living only 15 miles away. So I had my own little Twilight Zone moment when I heard my personal homewood come up in one of my favourite podcasts. For the record, I lived there for about 17 years, and I don't know of a specific spot called German Corners. However, there is definitely a road called German's Corner Road. I wouldn't be surprised if the whole area was once called German Corners before Germansville was established. I'm also familiar with Pleasant Corners, which is practically, you guessed it, walking distance from Germansville. I can't imagine that Richard Matheson ever occasioned to visit the place. If he did, he was surely lost. Of course, most of the early settlers in this part of Pennsylvania were from Germany and became known as the Pennsylvania Dutch. So in a way, it would make sense for someone from the old country to send someone to this region, as they did in the story. Thanks for making my day with that reference, and thanks as always for the great shows. I'm really enjoying your analysis of season four. Best regards, Mark. Well, thank you, Mark, for sending that in. It's a it's a fascinating little thing for me. You know, this place that barely existed when it was there, and maybe could just get forgotten about by the simplest thing like the the changing of a place name. So this information's great and I really appreciate you taking the time to write in. Now I also got a message from a good friend of the show, Frank, who is also a Twilight Zone podcaster. And he says, Hi Tom, I wanted to give you some good info on your question about towns in PA with the name German in it, with German descendants living there. In northeast Philly, there's a small area of the city that borders the Delaware River called Fishtown. It's where my German side of the family is from. They call it Germantown. Now officially though, people still don't know that small section as Fishtown, and it's now since been changed to Germantown, because it used to be 100% German immigrants that lived there up to the 60s. My last name is Linke, and I did some digging into my ancestors recently. It turns out, family ended up in Fishtown back in the late 1770s, when Washington crossed the Delaware River on Christmas and took Trenton from the Hessians. 
they were given the choice to return to Heisenberg, now in Germany, or they could stay, and were given small plots in northeast Philly, next to the river, Fishtown, and my great-great-great-grandfather chose to stay, and that's where my family did up to this day. My grandfather, Francis W. Linker, was the only Linker to move out of Germantown, Fishtown, Philadelphia, and moved to Williamstown, New Jersey, a 15-minute drive east from the city, and that's where I live today. So there you go, crazy family tree. Cheers, Tom. And thank you, Frank. Again, it's it's just fascinating, isn't it? You know, the way the naming of these places can get lost to history. How many places kind of existed, but then just became other things as borders changed, as people moved on. So all fascinating stuff, all fascinating stuff. And I think that maybe German Corners has disappeared into the fifth dimension. Okay, thank you so much for writing in, guys. And let's go over to some audio feedback. Hi, Tom, and hello, Twilight Zone podcast listeners. This is Jordan checking in with some listener feedback for the Death Ship episode. Uh, I've always enjoyed this episode. I think it's filmed and acted really well. Um, Jack Klugman is great in practically everything he did. Uh, while I like his other Twilight Zone appearances better, this is still enjoyable. The whole episode leaves me a little creeped out. Uh, while we do find out at the end that the crew is in fact dead, you're doing some guesswork throughout. And I think it's sometimes written in lore that when some people die, they don't automatically know that they're dead. Some even refuse to believe it, and that's kind of what we have going on here. Uh, I always enjoy the afterlife scenes, too. While Carter is very much confused, Mason's scene with his wife and daughter is hauntingly beautiful. It gets me every time I watch it. Uh, to me, it's almost in the vein of the scene in The Trouble with Templeton, when he leaves his wife and friends, and uh, they're all left there silently watching him, stuck in their own place. Both of those scenes are gripped by a deep sadness. You can really feel it. So I'll pose a question, just for fun. Uh, is this just their fate in the Twilight Zone, this crew, or is Captain Ross still exercising some kind of free will by having this happen to them over and over again? Just something to think about, I guess. And a few more quick observations. Uh, those chairs on their ship look insanely uncomfortable for long-term space travel. Uh, and two things that kind of make me laugh in the episode is when Carter pulls his gun out on the other two and Mason basically tells him to just knock it off and it's kind of like, okay, crisis averted, let's get back to work here. And the other one is when Ross enters Mason's afterlife scene and they are wrestling with each other. If you listen closely or have closed captioning on, Mason, during the struggle, says, Damn it, sir! Even during this fight, uh, he's still giving proper respect to the captain. I don't know, I just always find that funny. So that's it for me. Thanks, Tom. Hey, Tom. It is Uncommon NASA. I am sending in some feedback, as I said I would, for the episode Mute. 
uh, I usually like will put some bullet points down when I send you feedback and stuff, but I'm taking a quick work break right now, so uh, I'm just kind of going off the top of the head after listening to, to your episode. I Like I said last week, I, I, I sent some ridiculously lengthy comments that you graciously put on your show <laughs> about He's Alive, but um, this week... It's a little bit shorter, a little bit sweeter, I guess. You know, I've been waiting to kind of talk about Mute because I had seen, to my surprise, a couple years back, like a lot of sort of like internet recaps of the series or of season four or just opinion pieces and stuff. And Mute was like ranked in, in the bottom of, uh, of of a few people's rankings, I think for all five seasons or, or at least for season four. And I was always really surprised because... Mute was probably one of the first three or four season four episodes that I had ever seen, you know, just through natural syndication. And it, it always stuck with me as a good episode. I, I just like it. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about it. I, I thought the acting was really good. I, I, a couple quick points on on the, the main married couple. Um, of course, the same actor from uh, season one's Walking Distance uh, plays the father again. But this time he's sort of like a grumpy cop dad. And, you know, some of his acting and some of his harshness is, is like a little bit over the top. It almost approaches like Telly Savalas in, in Living Doll, where it's almost like bordering on comical. But I think if you've been around like, you know, friends with like angry cop dads, that's kind of how they are. So it, it kind of works in that way. I feel like it was like insightful the way it was written uh, that a guy like in his position at his point, you know, where he's sort of like the sheriff or, or whatever his, his role is in leadership there he's been doing it for a while he's grumpy he's, he's perturbed he's cynical I think if you come into this episode looking for a different character you're going to be disappointed maybe by the stiffness of some of the acting but I, I think you get the characters you're given and I think that those characters were all written in the way that they were and acted in the way that they were for a reason including the mother I just felt like when they did the recap flashback of the cops bringing her her natural daughter home you know after drowning like the 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 heart-wrenching screams i mean those like hit you right in the gut and i mean that can't be easy to do right <laughs> like i'm not an actor but like that that can't be easy to pull off such genuine heartache like that especially in a in a tv show in the early 60s so I, I just thought all of that really worked. There was also like a lot of, again, like he's alive. I pointed out like some of the sort of unwritten things that were in that episode, like the jealousy between uh, Volmer and um, the, the older gentleman that's taking care of him or, or that took him in. Um, in this episode, I noticed this one part where after the mother burns the letter to Germany to, to the people that had you know, actually raised Ilsa or, or were part of the experiment with their with her parents that raised Ilsa. The father gets out of the car and he's he's trying to figure you could see his brain working as the character, not as the actor, you know, and he looks at the mailbox and he gives it this look that hangs for a few seconds. And you realize without a word being said that he figured out that she was lying and that she did something to the letter that he he looked at the mailbox and was like that's where I put it and then he looked back at her and I, you know I don't know does that stuff on a script you know does it does it have that written in parentheses like look longingly at the mailbox maybe it does maybe it doesn't but like little things like that I, I guess they kind of had more time to leave those those edits in and to maybe let the actors 
like freelance a little bit with the hour format. It's something that I never noticed until rewatching it now. Maybe it's something to keep an eye on is like how much more ad-libbing and like impulse acting there is in this uh, hour long format as compared to the half hour where it's just cut, 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 you know, get to the story. In terms of like the message of the episode real quick, I always saw it as a nonconformist episode. I saw it as a struggle against nonconformity, but in the Twilight Zone way of saying, look, you know, this is this is what it feels like to be forcibly conformed, but also don't go too far with nonconformity, if that makes sense. You know, like there, there are reaches, there's balances, there's reason, there's ways to work within the system and still be a different person. And, you know, do I agree with all of that 100%? Not particularly. I, I think, you, you know, to nonconform is to nonconform. But I, I think from the perspective of the writers of this show, particularly Serling and Matheson, it makes sense coming from them that they would write, well, well, that Matheson would write something like this that sort of plays both sides of it. And I think the message is, yes, the girl is happy. Yes, the mother is happy. The father will be happy. Yes, the people as part of the experiment sort of understood when to let go. So they're at peace. But there's still sort of a what could have been. And is that what could have been worth doing what they were doing to these kids? And I think it just leaves you with a lot to think about and ponder. I don't, I don't know if it's like shouting a message to, to you or to me or to anyone. I, I think that the interesting part is you can derive your own meaning from it. But I, I do think that there's sort of just like more so than representing like nonconformity or conformity. I think it represents just the idea of putting conformity on display and examining it and letting you come up with your own conclusion. So I think there's a lot going on here. You know, the creepiness and the, and the subject matter really feels like Beaumont. So um, it is, it is interesting that Matheson wrote this episode. This, this could be, I'd have to look at the list, but this is definitely one of my favorite Matheson episodes. You know, I, I am more of a, I, I found myself drawn to a lot of obviously Serling and, and Beaumont and also some Hamner pieces, some of the more sentimental ones. But this one really stands out as like a strong Matheson piece to me. You know, I'm really glad that you pointed out a lot of the differences between the short story and the, and the writing in the screenplay. I think changing it changing the gender of the child somehow just helped the story and you know having the 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 participants go back without revealing what the plan was really helped the story and, and helped put that sort of like inkling of a message that i just talked about into the episode so i wouldn't have ever known that had <laughs> had i not read the Stuart story which probably would have never happened oh my own unfortunately i don't read enough so I don't know, I'm just happy about the episode. Uh, you know, overall, season four is kind of surprising me. Outside of In His Image, which I, I'm really not that big of a fan of, I was kind of like pleasantly surprised by even the episodes I thought were sort of on the mediocre side. I thought they've all like shown better than I remembered them. I think season four is really shown really well, and I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the episodes. There's another episode that I've seen beaten down on the internet that's coming up eventually and uh, i'm not even going to spoil which one it was because i don't want to bias you or anyone else or, or try to i want to see how you how you take it it is not a favorite of many people 
at least many people that have the the wherewithal to write about the Twilight Zone on the internet. So uh, I'm not sure when I'll come back in, but looking forward to hearing the rest of these. Thanks, Tom. Hi, Tom. Al here. You know, on your Patreon page, I fancy myself to be the defender of the 1980s Twilight Zone series. And I was figuring that I was going to be the defender of the fourth season hour-long episodes as well. I've been very pleased, though, to hear your podcast so far and hear that you're defending it too. In fact, you like it better five episodes in than I do. And if that's the case, I think you're really going to enjoy the rest of the season because there's some great things coming up. The season includes what I think is Earl Hamner's best Twilight Zone, Jess Bell, a great episode by Reginald Rose, who was another one of the founding architects of 1950s television writing, along with Rod and Patty Chayefsky. That's the incredible world of Horace Ford. And an episode that I love, perhaps because of my playwriting background, that most people seem to hate, and that's The Bard. But the main reason why I want to defend the fourth season so much is that it has my two favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, of the entire series. It also has my two least favorite episodes of the entire series. And interestingly enough, my least favorite and my favorite are back-to-back, and both by Richard Matheson. I always love listening to your podcasts that are about the episodes that I don't like, because you always have something to say that gives me a new perspective on them. So I was really looking forward to your episode on Mute, to see if you could sway me. And you did a pretty good job. The best thing you said, in terms of swaying me, was that Ilsa did not choose to be raised as a telepath, so she was already being manipulated by adults. But still, you didn't get me. I'm sorry. It's not so much that I don't find the story interesting, though I think there are plenty of other Twilight Zones much more interesting than this. It's that I think it's a tragedy that is presented as if it's a triumph. It's a horror show, really, where the monsters win. But it doesn't know that it is. Excuse Cora all you want because of the loss of her child. She's still a hysterical, devious person who should not have a child in her care. And Miss Frank is a terror. I shudder to think of Ilsa in Cora's hands growing up, having to go to that school with Miss Frank. So I can't buy into what this episode is trying to tell me. All right, so if we assume that this is bad, which I know you think it's middle of the pack, but let's just assume it's bad, Is it really worse than episodes like 90 Years Without Slumbering? And no, probably not, but it aspires to something much higher, and therefore it falls much farther. The hour length, which I usually don't have any problem with, I think really hurts it in this case. And what it comes down to to me is more of a visceral thing. What episodes of The Twilight Zone, if I stumble upon them on the television, can I not bear to watch again? Will I actually turn off? And this may be the only one. Now, I think, once again, you did a terrific job of presenting it, and I particularly loved Uncommon NASA's comments about he's alive. I thought they were just brilliant. But unfortunately, NASA, I don't agree with you when it comes to mute. And that just demonstrates that we all have different tastes. We all have different preferences. And yet, somehow, we all come together with this show. So in the spirit of different tastes, let me talk just a little bit about my favorite episode of all time, Death Ship. There are all kinds of different Twilight Zones, but the two subgenres that stick out for me are the message episodes and the puzzle episodes. 
The message episodes are, of course, great episodes like The Monsters Who Do on Maple Street, The Shelter, and He's Alive. The puzzle episodes are episodes like Stop Over in a Quiet Town, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, and To Serve Man. Death Ship is the pinnacle of the puzzle episode because it plays fair, it twists you in knots, and it leaves you where you started. It tells you the solution early on, then it talks you out of it before it brings you back again. In fact, it tells you the solution in its very title. The moments that seem to make no sense, Carter's telegram, Mason's meeting with Ruth, make perfect sense once you find out the solution. And they're all the more heartbreaking when you find that solution. In fact, it is a completely heartbreaking episode. Intentionally so, as opposed to the unintentional heartbreak in Mute. The performances by Ross Martin and Frederick Beer are first-rate, but what really makes the episode stand out is the performance by Jack Klugman. I think it's his best performance in The Twilight Zone, because it's a completely different character than the ones he's asked to do in the other three episodes that he's in. And it's a wonderful character study, a fantastic portrayal of an obsessed captain in the spirit of Ahab and Queeg, but it's done in such a calm, confident manner that you don't see what's happening in front of your eyes. Now, I recall at Serling Fest, you were on a panel with some others whom I forget offhand who they were, I'm sorry to say, one of whom said that Death Ship was one of his least favorite episodes. And the reason why was because of Klugman's portrayal, that it's too reassuring, that you identify with him too strongly. And to me, that's what makes it great. So when you watch this episode for the first time, you fall into Klugman's lap, you follow the whole thing, the puzzle intrigues you, you get sucked into first that theory, and then the other theory, and then the third theory, and by the time it's done, it knocks you out of your seat, and if you stop and think about it afterwards, it breaks your heart. By the way, my second favorite episode is also a great character study, and that one, I think, is a message episode but I'll hold off on that and maybe talk to you about it some other time. And my second least favorite episode? I don't want to influence you in any way, so I'll keep that to myself too. Tom, you're doing a great job with the fourth season. Keep it up. I'm loving every minute. Talk to you soon. Bye. Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, will tell you about next week's story after this message. Thanks to everyone for their feedback. If you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email a clip of around five minutes or less to Tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com and give your thoughts on any or all of the episodes we've discussed so far in season four or maybe the next one. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. And now, Mr. Serling. Next, we delve into the realm of American folklore. And through the offices of a fine writer named Earl Hamner, Jr., we peruse a little witchcraft and bring you a story called Jess Bell. This exercise in terror and talisman stars Anne Francis and James Best. Form a ring, circle right with a pretty little thing. Now break that ring with a corner swing. Go back home, dose or don't. I never seen no cat with spots like that. 
witch. That cat was a witch. <laughs>